1: Hey guys, it's Albert. We've got an awesome show for you this week. We've got takeaways coming out of week 17. We've got an autopsy of the greatest dynasty of the modern era in the NFL. We've got Fab with our DraftKings segment. And we've got all your questions in the six-pack. Let's go. All right, welcome in. We have just about made it. We are 16 games away from completing the 2020 regular season. Week 16 is in the books. Week 17 is here. The NFL is right on the doorstep of their goal of playing 256 games in 17 weeks. It's the Albert Breer Show. It's been weird. It's been wonky. It's been uneven. But again, the NFL has somehow made it here. Um, We've had strange circumstances in getting here. We had the Titans situation earlier in the year. We had more recently the Browns situation at the receiver position. We had Kendall Hinton, a guy who nobody had heard of maybe two, three days before kickoff, starting a game at quarterback for an NFL team. And because the NFL has been determined to forge forward, because the NFL has not moved games for competitive reasons, uh, because the NFL has been, I, I think, very... Like, Look, like, like, I think a lot of people have put a lot of work into making this work and making sure that one case didn't turn into 10 in each individual team. A lot of people deserve credit. They've made it here. Again, you know, has it been perfect? No. There have been a, a, a ton of really, really strange circumstances to get to the finish line, but we're right here at the finish line. And we got a great show coming for you this week. A couple of my favorite guys are coming in. We're going to have kind of a roundtable type uh, segment for our guest this week, talking about the fall of the greatest NFL dynasty of my lifetime, probably the greatest NFL dynasty of the modern era. We got fabs in with our DFS stuff for week 17. We're going to wrap up some fantasy loose ends too with most fantasy seasons um, being wrapped up now. And of course, we're going to get to all your questions in the six pack, but we'll start with the takeaways like we always do. And my first takeaway from week 16... And I don't want it to be a recency thing because it was the second-to-last thing we saw in Week 16. But, man, Aaron Rodgers looks good. And, man, the Green Bay Packers look ready. And, man, that home field advantage looms large given the circumstances. Teams are going to have to go in there into a dark, cold, empty stadium and try to win a game against one of the greatest quarterbacks that we've ever seen. And so my first takeaway coming out of Week 16... I am on the verge of flipping my MVP vote, and I don't think I had any idea that this was coming. I, like, I can't tell you that when I did my midseason awards that I thought that anyone but Patrick Mahomes should have a shot at MVP. But Aaron Rodgers has played so well over the last few weeks, and at such a high level. Uh, you know I think what we're seeing is kind of what's Mark Murphy and the Packers envisioned happening if they hired a guy like Matt LaFleur with time and giving him time to put his system in, trying to convince people and sell people that it'll work and then seeing where it could take everybody. And this is the system. Again, the Shanahan system that so many teams want to run. Matt LaFleur showing he can run it at a high level. He's showing that the patience was worth it. And like, this is what we've seen other places, like in Atlanta, when Kyle Shanahan got there year one, some bumps, year two, Matt Ryan's MVP the Falcons are in the Super Bowl Sean McVay with the Rams, year one they've got the training wheels on Jared Goff year two, they take him off and Goff is leading the Rams into the Super Bowl even in Cleveland this year year one has been a shaky with Baker Mayfield under center, but he's progressively gotten better last week notwithstanding he looks like a more confident player it looks like it's starting to take there and I think that this is another one of those where that Shanahan system is taking root and the other 10 guys in the huddle are doing their jobs at a higher level and what you're getting right now is an Aaron Rodgers that's playing off the charts and I think maybe you know you maybe part of it is Jordan Love's now in the building part of it and this is Brian Strat first two draft picks by the way Jordan Love being in the building number two you know, Part of it is you know, they've got a really representative running game even when they get banged up at that position. Look, they, they roll A.J. Dillon out there. A.J. Dillon looks like a back he can build around now. But just from an individual standpoint, what Aaron Rodgers has been able to do with some of those things working in his favor, Shanahan in year two, the fire lit by, 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 by just the fact that they drafted a quarterback in the first round and then having the run game as a sidecar. I, I'm going to compare his number to, numbers to Mahomes, and you guys can be the judge here. He's completed 70% of his passes. Mahomes has completed 66. He's thrown for 4,059 yards. That's less than Mahomes. Mahomes has thrown for 4740. His touchdown-interception ratio is 44 to five. Mahomes is still sparkling, 38 to six. And quarterback rating, um, Rodgers is at 119.4, and Mahomes is at 108.7. That quarterback rating, by the way, as it stands right now, would be the third. Highest of all time. Aaron Rodgers actually holds the record. That 2011 season, when they started, I believe it was 13 and 0, he posted a 122.5 rating, which eclipsed Peyton Manning's 2004 season, where he had a 121.1 rating. Rodgers is just edging out Nick Foles. Believe it or not, numbers from that first Chip Kelly year, 2013. Foles had a 119.2 rating. So Aaron Rodgers, statistically having probably his second best season, I'm not sure he's ever played at a higher level. And if you guys want, like, I can kind of take you guys inside the huddle and tell you exactly what's happening and why this is going down this way, like, and 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 how much Rodgers has bought into what is happening, what what Matt Lafleur is building there. Um, yeah, he's made them more efficient overall, and I think you see it—the 32 yarder. Um, that kind of put the game away. Um, it was on the third and ten, and if you remember, like Rodgers was like a little off balance. He flicks the ball downfield, just a perfect throw. Like there aren't very many people on the planet who can make this throw. So it's a unique play to Rodgers in that there are very few people that can make that throw. There are very few people that can make the catch that Devonte Adams made down the sideline on that play. But that 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 play, that was a check after he had ID'd a zero blitz coming from the Titans and so he identified the pressure he moved to another play he he made a check he communicated with his receiver they were on the same page and they're able to make that throw down the field to put the game away and if you want to go to Adam's third touchdown his final touchdown of the game he came back to his second receiver late on his second progression these are signs of a quarterback who's bought in and I don't know that we saw this and this is no it isn't a shot at Mike McCarthy, it's just reality. Like Rogers is playing a lot of street ball under McCarthy. Like, and it's just the way it was at the end. And the fact that he's playing within the context of the offense, that he's buying into the offense, the way that he is. And the fact that it's being taught to him at this level. Um, and Matt LaFleur is one of the guys that, that, that's sort of like part of like Kyle Shanahan's crew that learned this offense as it was taking root all the way back in Houston. Um, Yeah, I I can't say enough for the job Rodgers is doing and what this says about buying into a certain system and a coach and a quarterback being in tune. Remember, all of the stuff at the beginning, how are these guys going to communicate? How is it going to be when LaFleur takes power away from him? How is it going to? It's working now. It took time, but it's working now. All right, takeaway number two. I think Urban Meyer would be a good hire in Jacksonville. And the reason why I say that, and listen, we clued you in a couple weeks ago to Urban Meyer and Jacksonville and that connection. And, you know, obviously there was some more reporting that came out over the weekend. I think Jacksonville just needs to be torn down. And... I'm not saying that that means you get rid of every player or every employee. It doesn't mean that. There are guys that I think you know can be really, really good players for whatever the next iteration of that organization is. Josh Allen, C.J. Henderson. I know um, Caleb on Chason hasn't gotten off the hottest start, but you know maybe there's still something there. Obviously, LaVisca Chenault has shown some pro- promise at receiver, as has D.J. Chark. So there are pieces there. Um, but I do think, from everything that I've understood, just from talking to people who've worked around that organization, been in that organization, I, there's like a nine to five culture there. that just needs to be ripped to the ground, like burned to the ground. And I think you're going to need more than just a coach and GM. I think you're going to need sort of a new culture built there. And it's a critical time for them because the reason why that job's so attractive is the resources that you're going to have there, and. If you are using those resources under the wrong context, under the wrong people, then you're going to burn them. And you're, you're not going to make the most out of what you've got right in front of you. And I think the chance to make the most out of these resources has to put some pressure on the Khan family, on Shad Khan, on Tony Khan. And, you know, it's Trevor Lawrence. It's multiple picks in the first, second, fourth, fifth, and seventh rounds. It's the cap space, which figures to be the most in the NFL next year it's the fact that you're going to have patient ownership, um, that makes this job so attractive and I think puts them in a critical position. And, um, urban Meyer's not next as a nose coach guys. Like I, like he's just, he, it's not to say he doesn't know it, not to say he can't coach it. He's a culture coach. He's a program builder and he's studied a lot of what's happened in NFL buildings over the last year and a half through guys who played for him at both Florida and Ohio state, even going back to Utah, he studied what works and what doesn't, um, And I think the first thing that he would do is he would attempt to build something that had a foundation beyond just which players they're picking beyond just which staffers they have. Like he would go in there and build. like his focus would be building a real foundation. And so I like the idea of urban Meyer to Jacksonville. I think it would appeal to him on a certain level because I don't think that he's wild about what his legacy is. In the state of Florida right now I think he'd like to fix that He won two national championships there And so getting a shot at the NFL And being able to fix maybe his legacy In North Florida it Might be like a two birds with one stone Type of scenario for him um, And again like like There's a reason why the guy was 83-9 and nine At Ohio State there re- There's a reason why the guy has A winning percentage over 900 Which is just insane at any level um, He's one of the best football coaches On the planet and do I think he's going to go back? Probably not. Like, probably not. Like, if you had to ask me right now, gun to my head, I think, like, the, there's a pretty good chance he just keeps doing what he's doing. And maybe he's this this era's John Gruden where, you know, he's flirting every year, but he never really jumps. Um, his health is still a factor. There's no question about it. But I'm not going to fault the Jaguars for going down this path and talking to him and giving him a look. And it's not the only team that, that has sort of kicked around the idea. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Again, like I think it appeals to him um, from a few different from a few different angles. I mean, there's the again the resources, the ability to work with Trevor Lawrence, the chance to fix his legacy in Florida. So it's a unique opportunity on that uh, on that level. Now, I just don't know if he goes back now, but I, I like I, I think that this will be one that will probably be hard to say no to him for him. And my main takeaway again is I think the Jaguars are doing the right thing by talking to him. Takeaway number three. Pittsburgh Steelers, I think, showed what they're made of on Sunday. And we talked about this last week, like how I thought some of the issues they had were actually to some degree sy- systemic where it was going to be hard to fix them on the fly. Number one, like I-, I don't know where the discernible strength in the roster is right now. That's a real issue. Like you thought the receiver group would grow up. The rate of growth hasn't happened as fast. On defense, the strength has, has been with some of the great Steelers teams of the past was at linebacker. And to lose both Devin Bush and Bud Dupree, I think is a serious deal. Like that's not something to just, that's not something to sneeze at. So like they, I don't know that the team has like a real discernible, like we're leaning on this when we're in trouble type of strength. I thought the coaching attrition caught up to them, like losing Todd Haley and Mike Munchak. Those are two really good football coaches. And to lose those guys, I think that that had an impact on where they were. And so I still don't know if it's completely fixed, but I think the team showed what it was made of to come back from twenty-four to from from being down twenty-four to seven against that defense, right? And to do what the Steeler defense did again, without Dupree and Bush, we saw some grit, we saw some toughness, we saw where the team's going to be a tough out again. Like I don't know that they have what it takes to to get where they need to go. And to be honest with you, I sort of I look, I, I've got my misgivings about what Mike Tomlin is doing this week and sitting some guys down. I know Ben Roethlisberger probably needs the rest from an injury standpoint, um, just because I think that it could wind up being important in the divisional round. If we get Buffalo Pittsburgh, like the seeds would set up for it to be. Um, and I think that there's also, you know, a chance here against Cleveland to build some momentum going into the playoffs some positive momentum coming off of that Colts game. Um, so like I, I, there's part of me that really thinks they should have gone forward with what they have, but they did show something. There's no question about it. They did show something in Week 16. Takeaway number four, the Cowboys are back on the radar. Somehow, after 2-7, and seven, after 3-9, and nine, a Dallas Cowboys team that looked like it had quit on Mike McCarthy and that staff, a Dallas Cowboys team that had lost basically its entire offensive line and its quarterback, a Dallas Cowboys team where the defensive talent didn't look like it was coalescing whatsoever, has somehow climbed itself back into the ugly, ugly, ugly NFC East race uh, with the Dwayne Haskins situation in uh, with the Dwayne Haskins situation in Washington, obviously contributing to that. Um, the Washington football team goes to Carolina and loses, and Dallas being able to beat Philly. Now we've got a situation where it's a three-horse race for the division. If Dallas beats the Giants and Washington loses dallas wins the division the giants beat dallas and philadelphia and and washington loses then the giants at six and ten win the division if washington wins then they win the division so how'd the cowboys get here well i i think as much as anything else so much of that team its identity was built around that offensive line and the quarterback's a factor but as much of its identity was built around that offensive line I think losing that really sent the whole operation into disarray. I mean, they've been built around that offensive line going back six, seven years now. And with the investment they made all those years ago in Tyron Smith and Travis Frederick and Zach Martin and, you know, at one point, Lyle Collins. uh, I think just the idea that, like, that they could succeed without that being a strength was sort of foreign there. And they aren't back where they were before. Tyron Smith isn't coming back. Zach Martin's been out. Travis Frederick retired. Lyle Collins is out. But I think just having a group playing together, like the group you know they have now with Brandon Knight, with Joe Looney as sort of the linchpins, crazy as that sounds, with Connor McGovern, with Connor Williams, I, like at the very least now they've got a group that's played together some. They've got a veteran quarterback who's seen it all in and Andy Dalton, and that allows them to take advantage of their strengths better because they do have that. And their strengths clearly are at the skill positions with Zeke Elliott, with C.D. Lamb, with. Amari Cooper with Tony Pollard and with Michael Gallup and so I think being able to take advantage of their strengths now because the offensive line is not a complete tire fire has allowed them to get back in the race I don't know how much damage they can do if they actually get to the playoffs I do think it speaks well of Mike McCarthy who I was critical of earlier in the year and that staff that they were able to keep those guys on board through everything finally my final takeaway of week 16 the Dwayne Haskins situation I think uh, to me, it like tells us a lot about what it takes to play quarterback in the league, what situation means for a young quarterback, and where Washington is going under Ron Rivera. Number one, um, what it takes to play quarterback in the league, you need to be all in. You need to be the guy that is setting the example. You need to be the guy who is there early and staying late there are lots of guys who've wound up out of the league faster than they should have when they were still useful as players because they weren't that guy. And Dwayne Haskins, if he's going to get back to where he needs to go, he needs to become that guy. And he hasn't been that guy. And part of the issue was the way he was acting outside the building, but it's also how he was, how he was inside the building. And so whether it's right before he's benched in a blowout loss to Baltimore, Like celebrating a 300 yard effort, both on the field and in the locker room, which is coaches, which is teammates, which they noticed. Like whether it's that, whether it's going to the strip club without a mask on, whether it's, you know, showing up and looking unprepared in that game with your job on the line last weekend. Like Dwayne Haskins has, over two years, has clearly not grown up. We saw signs of growth, it's not been sustained growth. And for him to have a chance somewhere else, there's going to need to be sustained growth. There's no question about it. And you can go back and look at how this happened. Look, Washington made a decision that we're not going to have him here in 2021. We don't want the storyline in our building anymore. They were thinking about cutting him the week before. The reason they didn't was they didn't think it would be fair to everybody else. And then he went out on Sunday and he showed that there wasn't a difference between him and the practice squad player. And that was that. And so Dwayne Haskins has talent. There's, this isn't a guy devoid of talent. He needs to grow up. That was the rap on him coming out of Ohio State. It's the rap on him now. I hope he gets the opportunity to do it. I don't think he's a bad guy. Um, this is about him, though. This has got to be about him. And this is about him understanding what it is to be a quarterback in the NFL and then becoming that guy. Number two, I do think that it's sort of, you know, it, this shows where um, this, this shows how – situation can dictate what happens with a quarterback. To be fair to Haskins, that wasn't a good situation he walked into last year. He was inherited by a coaching staff that was lukewarm on him. Then a coaching staff inherited him that like had no connection to him, that had no investment in him. The organization was blowing up around him. There's the ownership issue. There's the change in team president. So now all of a sudden you get to a situation where like basically everybody's job's on the line and You know, the team's playing well and, you know, the the team starts to play well and you're not a part of it. You know, I'm not excusing anything Haskins did, but you had bad circumstances and now you're not strong enough to keep those circumstances from taking you down. And look, like there's a reason why Patrick Mahomes got as good as he got as quick as he could. And part of it is that he's an awesome player. He's a transcendent talent. Like, right. There's a huge part of it. Um, but, you know, he walked into a situation where he's playing for Andy Reid. He's got Mitch Schwartz and Eric Fisher blocking for him. He's got Tyree Kill and Sammy Watkins to throw to. He had early in his career Kareem Hunt behind him. He's got a first-round pick and Clyde Edwards a behind him now. Like, that's a good situation. Same thing with, with Lamar Jackson. He walks into a place where the coaching staff – is put together to help him they promote greg Warren, greg greg, greg roman to help him um, and to build a system for him he's playing behind ronnie stanley and orlando brown he's throwing to hollywood brown and mark andrews he's got mark ingram behind him jk dobbins this year situation and circumstance is such a huge part of whether or not quarterbacks make it that's the overriding point carson Wentz is a great example too carson Wentz when they had doug peterson and frank reich and john d filippo on the staff together when Jason Peters and Lane Johnson were healthy, when, you know, he's throwing to Alshon Jeffrey and Zach Ertz and, you know, Brent Selleck at the height of their powers, like he was great. When the situation wasn't as good around him, not as good. So circumstance and situation is a huge part with young quarterbacks. Number three, hey, this is where Ron Rivera is taking the team. And it's his show and Like, like I've reported this already, like he's going to be leading the GM search and he's going to emphasize culture and he's going to emphasize what he wants the place to look like and smell like and feel like. And that's why they brought him in there. Uh, They brought him in there because they believe they needed somebody to shake the place up and just completely resurface what it meant to play to play for or to work for that organization. And this is another sign of them going in that direction where there aren't any sacred cows. And we're going to get to our guests in a second, but my bonus six takeaway, the Buffalo Bills looked awesome, looked great the other night, and they're not going anywhere. That AFC East is going to get much harder to win now with Buffalo and Miami at the top um, for the team that we're about to talk about, the New England Patriots, who have a lot of problems. So to dive into those problems, we'll get to our guests right after this. All right. And so based on everything that happened over the last couple of days, I, I wanted to bring in a couple of guys that I, I've worked with a bunch and just kind of open things up a little bit here and talk about where the, the one of the greatest dynasties in the history of sports and certainly I think the greatest dynasty that we've seen in the new millennium in any sport has kind of come down and come back to earth over the last, I'd say, year and a half or so. So to do that, we're going to bring in two guys who played a bunch of years within that dynasty, who worked with people there, and who understand it, I think, about as well as anybody, and two guys that I've done a ton of work with on NBC Sports Boston over the last year and a half. So we've got a roundtable type of format this week, and as a part of that, we're bringing in former Patriots and Chiefs quarterback, Matt Castle. I don't. How many other teams is it, Matt? What, seven. Mine? You know, just just a Lions, few. Lions, mean, right, right. Yeah, we.
2: 14 uh, years though. Yeah, we had uh, the Patriots, the Kansas City Chiefs, the Minnesota Vikings. Then I had a cup of coffee with the Buffalo Bills. Got traded to Dallas in the same season. Then I went to Tennessee Titans and finished my career with the Detroit Lions.
1: That's right. And Ted, uh, Ted's only one team. I don't think I have got to go much That's further. Than just to, all I got. All I got to say is expatriate linebacker Ted Johnson. Right.
3: That's right, Bert. Ten years, man. Boy. Right. Said.
1: Okay, so all right, obviously you guys, you know, like everybody else, you're sitting there and you're watching that last night. And um I, I guess my first question for both you guys is like watching that last night did it take it to another level for you at all. Like, you know, and I think we all knew this wasn't their year. I think we all knew, um, and we knew going into last night that that the season was gonna be over on January third. And that's a new spot for the Patriots. They haven't missed the playoffs since 2008. Um, did, did anything that you guys saw on Monday night, um, Patriots Bills, sort of take where New England is to a different level for you?
2: I mean, it's kind of been ongoing throughout the course of the season. There's been ebbs and flows, right? They started the season strong, and then all of a sudden you you have the COVID-related issues, and then the, you got the Chiefs where Cam misses that game, and it kind of derailed them for a little bit. They come back, they lose to the Broncos. They get drummed by the 49ers, but then they had a stretch of games there where you thought, look, this team's kind of coming together, right? They played the Bills tough, lost 24-21, but then they go and beat the Jets, which they should beat the Jets. They beat the Ravens. They lose in a tight game to the Texans. Cardinals, they win. Chargers, they just absolutely demolish for a number of different reasons. But then they go on the skid where they hit the Rams, the Dolphins, and now the Bills. And I think it just was a culmination of things, right? And we talk about the inefficiencies or deficiencies, whatever you want to say, about the offensive side of the ball. And they continue to show up week in and week out. And if the margin for error was so small throughout the course of this season, considering all the stuff that we talked about from a from an offensive standpoint, look, they they could run the ball but that's about all they could do. They they had no concept of a pass game whatsoever. Cam struggled to throw the ball throughout the course of the year. I think he's had a few games where you actually would say that he looked like an actual pro style quarterback and that would be Seattle. And probably, I mean, the Texans, he made some throws in that game as well. But other than that, there's just too much inconsistency. And the defensive side of the ball, they had their own struggles, right? With the opt-outs and then some injuries early on. And it it just, it was a little bit unsettling, but it, it works hand in hand, right? When your offense isn't being productive, you're not moving the ball and moving the chains. Well, then all of a sudden... From a defensive standpoint those guys are on the field the entire time and they weren't able to produce a good pass rush and and so i mean it, there's a multitude of reasons why this season is what it is but i mean there's been a lot of change and a lot of turnover
3: yeah matt and uh bird it's gonna be on with you guys you look this a lot of the problems you're seeing with the patriots though you you could have seen coming um these are i mean the roster was a big big question mark before the season even started and i think let's just face it, it's for i think the roster has been the the main kind of storyline for the last couple years. But with Tom here, clearly he covers a lot of the warts and, you know, a a lot of the deficiencies that you have. And now that he's gone, it really exposes you to really how bad this roster uh, was and is. Um, There was issues with going into the last season at the tight end position, issues with the wide receiver uh, position uh, at the start of last year. It's still the same problems this year. Nothing has changed. And so so you could really maybe have forecasted this happening when you really consider the loss of tom the, the change of the ecosystem the tough the toughness of the schedule um and just really all this uncertainty around on cam newton when you bring in a guy you know i don't care how good of a quarterback you are um matt you can tell me different you know when you come into a new system at the very end of the summer without otas and without a truncated offseason I think it's it's going to be very difficult, uh, and it's it's been a you know tractor pull all season long. The offense has been terrible all season long, but it's really I think the biggest disappointment of this season is really the performance of the defense and that front seven because it showed early on it, uh, it could be I think you know a, a pretty good front seven, um, and just this team uncharacteristically the last two years it's gotten worse as the season's gone on. And that is typically not how Bill Belichick's teams are. You typically, as you know, Matt, you get better as the season goes on. The last couple of years though, the play and the execution gets has gotten worse um as the season's gone on in two thousand nineteen and two thousand twenty for the Patriots.
1: Yeah, it's really weird, right? Like that is there an explanation for that, do you think? Like, I mean, we know what the roster is, right? Like the roster is what it is. Like, is there an explanation why that – I, I like I think he said it was like I remember covering teams that you guys were on and it'd be like like they always said like I think Bill would always say like you know what you are, you know what your team is on Thanksgiving, right? Like right around yeah. Thanksgiving like that's when you sort of learn where you're at. Like what is it like what does it say about where they are? Like is there an explanation for that? Like how they aren't like in that position where they are ascending, you know, going towards the end of the season.
2: Yeah, you know, that's a tough question to uh, like answer just right off the bat, because I feel like this team has historically been outstanding in the later months of the season. Like you said, you understand who you are as a team, you have your identity. And when you're when you have that identity, you're able to build around that and do what you do really well. And I think particularly for this team, They never really had that identity other than running the ball, right? And and they they had that aspect, but you can't become one-dimensional in this league. We all know that you have to be able to throw the ball, and you have to be able to throw the ball effectively to be successful in this league. This is a pass-happy league, and it's a pass-driven league, and you can run the ball well and have success doing it, and they showed that in the Super Bowl run in, what, 2018 and what they did in the playoffs. At the end of the day, though, this team just, they had no balance on, on the offensive side of the ball, and that is a serious issue, and they struggled in so many many different capacities. And then, like you said, defensively, one week it's the pass game, like against Houston or last last night against the Bills. And then the other other games, it was like against the Rams and the Dolphins, where you couldn't stop the run, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so he, it almost was like pick your poison. And the, when the games that they lost, they lost. Really bad, and they weren't able to make adjustments, and that's what they've been so good at over the years: is their adjustments that they've made not only in game but throughout the course of the season to get better in certain areas.
1: Well, maybe like what you're saying, though, Matt, like about identity, right? Like maybe it's just that they don't have a discernible strength, like because you can't have an identity if there's nothing you're really good at, right? Like, and I know that (laughs) sounds harsh, like. Like, isn't like, yeah. I mean, Ted, like, isn't like building an identity of, as a team about like figuring out what you're good at, right? Like cause yeah. your identity is going to tie to what you're good at. So if the roster is such a problem and you don't have like a discernible strength, that, like doesn't it become like maybe, maybe that's what it is. Like it's just impossible to build an identity if there's nothing yeah. you're really like that good at.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. And I think Bill's tried to, you look, when you, when you have lack of talent, what are, what are teams usually based uh, kind of build up built on when you know, they're maybe devoid of, of talent good special teams strong defense and you know uh, an offense that you know w- won't won't turn the ball over okay you know what the Patriots aren't good at doing those basic things right <laughs> i mean they're their their defense is is you know it's the strength of this team was always it was going to be their running game and their secondary. Well, the, the running game has been hit or miss all season long. It's been too inconsistent, and the secondary is negated. Its strength is being negated by the fact that you have a front seven that isn't that good. So really, you know, those secondary guys are left out to dry, so you don't really know how good the secondary is because the front seven doesn't do a lot of its job in, in applying uh, applying pressure. But you're absolutely right. There isn't anything that this team does really that well. Um, and, and and that's that's the shocking thing about it is usually bill even though he's you know devoid of talent or he might you know have a lesser player at a certain position he can always scheme for it game plan he can always kind of work around that and nothing he's been doing this year boys is working no scheme no game planning nothing and that's got to be the, like just so maddening to bill is that from a schematic standpoint he doesn't even nothing he does, it seems to be working uh, is, is enabled is, enable, is it, nothing is working to overcome the, the talent uh, deficiencies they have on this roster.
1: Okay. So what you just said though, right? Like all of those problems, like the Trump card had always been 12, right? Like that had always right. been the Trump card. Like in that I like, and I, this is where I want to get I want to get to this with you, Matt, because you saw it. You weren't a, you, you know, you were in the room with him for right. four years. Like, and I, and I, I like, as I'm kind of like, like organizing, like how I'm thinking about this in my head, I think back to 2006, which you guys lost David Gibbons. Um, you thought you'd have Dion branch. So that wasn't planned for, but you lose Dion branch week one. And I just remember that, like having covered that team day to day, like, I remember that being almost like I felt like that was one of Brady's best seasons because there was just a revolving door around him, right? And no there doubt. were so many issues there. And obviously, you guys, you know, shored those up the next year with Wes and Randy and all those guys. So, like, I, this is a long way of getting to the question, which is like, how did Brady make up for all those different issues? Like, when you guys did have problems in different areas, how what like what was it about Tom that made him so good at like just kind of like i guess like for lack of a better way of putting it being able to patch every hole
2: right now i think that josh mcdaniels deserves a lot of credit that year too and what they were able to do because really when we started the season i think it was rashay codwell troy brown and who else was there gabriel uh, Doug Gabriel came in <laughs> midway through the year, and then right. Rash- um, and then uh, Jabbar Gaffney came in. I think it was week four from Houston released him, and he came in and was a productive player for us. But you know what was amazing is how they manipulated the formations. They used a bunch of bunch stack formations to to you know help help get these guys open, help help create separation, and that's kind of how we lived in that. Now our offensive line was still strong. We still had um, Ben Watson, and we still had. Who am I blanking on his name Daniel, right now? Daniel Graham. Uh, Daniel Graham. We had Daniel Graham. We could still run the ball. So there was some balance still within this offense, but it wasn't like we were completely inept like they are in the past game now. We could still spread people out. We could still create mismatches. We could still do that from a formational standpoint. And then it was just about pure execution. And Brady, you know, Brady's Brady. I mean, he he's phenomenal at that. He understood the offense. He understood the matchups and was able to overcome you know, so maybe some lack of uh, lack of production and lack of the players that we had, but they also did it in a manner which they still were able to work within the the, the confines of that system in in and create the the empty formations like i said the bunch the stacks and do all that where this year is completely different they don't even have really a number three receiver you know when you lose right. julian elman when you're not getting any production that uh, had harry and you're really down to jacoby myers and demir bird which look those guys have have played well and i don't want to take anything away from them but then you also don't have any tight end presence so you're you're, you're counting on 21 personnel running your head against the wall and then uh, asking Cam Newton to go out there and run a bunch of play action. And like you said, we were talking about this earlier, right? And that was a great point I thought you brought up about being under center and throughout his entire career. You know, it's a huge adjustment when you're in gun and you're used to running that run and shoot type offense, RPOs, and you live in gun and how you see the field and how you go through your reads versus being under center and having to go through a full progression with a seven-step drop working yourself up in in the pocket and the comfort level that he really never had throughout the course of the year.
1: So what you're saying is it's not just like Cam, you're not getting the most out of Cam because he's not, because he's having to worry about himself more than everything around him. Where like when Tom was at his best, it was like, Tom, go figure it out. And you knew that like, like you knew his part of the equation was taken care of. Like that wasn't,
2: and part of it also is the fact that his comfort level within that system and with Josh McDaniels, the system didn't change for him it wasn't like cam where cam had to come in like you said with the truncated offseason really no offseason you get signed late you go into camp and now you're competing you're not getting all the reps and you're trying to fight for that job and learn a new system at the same time Tom was very comfortable within system he can make all the calls we could get out of good bad plays you know we could make all the checks at the line of scrimmage so that is where he excelled and where Tom Brady and his brilliance uh, and understanding And expertise of the system really helped overcome some of those problems that we had on the offensive side
3: of the ball. And don't you guys think too? Besides all the things that Tom just does, you know, from a schematic standpoint or from a player standpoint, I just think his presence, him being on the team, Mm -hmm. it, it has an impact on the whole on the whole team. It has an impact on, I think, the entire team's collective uh confidence, if you will you know I, I you know I'm just a lot more confident going into a game as a middle linebacker starting from the New England Patriots if the starting quarterback for me is is Tom Brady you know I think he just kind of his being there it kind of raises the level I think of everyone in the organization there's a level of professionalism, the expectations are raised um and I just think it, it just brings out the best of everybody take him out out of the equation. Now he's not; he's removed from the uh, you know ecosystem, and I think it it just changes things a little bit, where guys aren't as confident collectively going in. And I think it can have even even though Tom's not here anymore, I think it can still have you can still have an impact um, because he's not here. And I just don't think guys feel as confident going into battle every Sunday when Tom Brady's not their quarterback.
1: Well, I mean, like guys, is it like as simple as belief then, you know, because like, like I look at Tampa and Tampa has come back from 17 points down twice this year. Like that's a huge yeah. deficit in an NFL game. Really? They came back against the chargers in that situation. They came back against the Falcons in that situation. I know those aren't great teams, but like I, it doesn't happen that often. Like teams coming back from those sorts of deficits, that's not normal in an NFL game. Right. No. So, and that organization hasn't been to the playoffs in thirteen years, and yeah. we've been picking Brady apart, but like they have, like they're in the playoffs, like they locked a playoff spot yeah. up with a week to go, and well, like hey, they're coming back from those de- like so. I have to think that's part of it, right? Like Ted, like yeah. I, like I would think, like there's part of it that's just belief, right? Like that we know we're gonna, fi- we know this guy's gonna figure it out.
3: Don't, don't hey Bert, don't you think? Don't you guys think, Matt? Don't you guys think that Tom's presence there and the impact that he's had with Tampa Bay is not too dissimilar to what Peyton Manning's impact was when he went to the, the Denver Broncos. Let's face it, that organization was a bit of a rudderless ship. It did not I don't think it had the strongest leadership at the higher levels. You know, and, and, and Peyton comes and it's like everyone falls in line. And I just think there's, there's just like, you know, uh, a level of kind of, 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 of expectations that weren't there until Peyton got there. I think the same thing is true with Tom. Tom going there, it raises the stakes. Everybody's, I think, a little bit more uh, focused in what they're doing. And there's more grit, right? I mean, you know, a 17-point deficit uh, at halftime in the NFL, that's a big deficit. And you just like you mentioned, Bert, to come back twice, this teams it wasn't in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers' DNA to overcome deficits like that in the past. And Tom's making a part of their DNA and making it kind of their the cultural – culture there, I think a little bit tougher from what he brings to the table.
2: Right. And I have to agree. And that was a great comparison by Ted about the Denver Broncos and Peyton Manning, because that was a talented roster, right? They had yeah. re- great receivers. They had a good defense and they needed that final piece of the puzzle, which was him and his leadership and what he does for the locker room. And also to watch him work and, and the dedication that those guys have guys like Tom Brady, guys like Peyton Manning that come into an organization can immediately change the culture just to be, based on these guys yeah. watching somebody that's been so successful for so long and been so consistent in the respect that they already have for him but to see that they he does, he doesn't take days off right he's as dedicated as he is as he was day one as he is now and then also the fact that they know that they're never out of a game right I mean Tom Brady's his mind and how it is it's like a steel trap door right you can't get into it he's not going to become flustered it's not like all the antics that you go through sometimes with the young guys and they get flustered and the coaches are getting flustered because they can't figure it out it's just like let's stay the course we've been through it I've been through every possible scenario that you could possibly be in in any type of game so let's just stay the course let's get back on track it takes one score and then another and then another and that's what tom brady provides for your team it's not just the play right because everybody's been critiquing tom brady's play and he's under a microscope this year about every single game and the deep throws and this but who wouldn't take basically 66 percent completion rate 4200 yards passing 36 touchdowns 11 interceptions with a 101 uh passer rating i mean (laughs) I'm pretty yeah. sure most of the teams in the league would be At like... 43 years old. No, 43 years yeah. old. And it's not like he's fallen off, and it's not... He hasn't lost arm strength. He hasn't done anything. But it's Tom Brady, too. And so there's an aura that comes along with that, and there's also a confidence that comes along with that. Well, I don't want to get too far afield, but that's just
1: sort of an interesting topic. So I want... Like, for you, Matt, when you walked into that quarterback room as a rookie was it a wake-up call seeing any like seeing anything from him was it was there any sort of wake-up call that you can remember where it was like holy crap like oh
2: <laughs> uh, yeah i was mesmerized when i first walked in and obviously they would just come off their third yeah. super bowl and all that stuff i called him mr brady when i first met him just because I'm an idiot. and, and so <laughs> you know, but then you get into that meeting room and you start to understand why he's where he is and how elite he, he is. And they, and I've been around the league. i've been I played for fourteen years and been around a lot of different quarterbacks. But there's few and far between. That have that type of attention to detail. And it's on a day-to-day basis. There's no, like I said, there's no days off. And the way that he worked in the weight room, the way that he prepared himself, the meetings and the questions that he would ask. He, I've learned more football in that first year between him and Josh McDaniels and the questions and the conversations that would take place that educated me on what they're looking at on the film film room, who they're trying to attack and why. And then also just the great understanding for defensive structure and scheme and and, and disguise and different keys that you can. And then also even just sitting down the before a game and he would meticulously go through that call sheet. He'd call out every play, go through every check, um, sometimes make adjustments on the fly. Hey, do we want Randy, Randy on the inside right now? Because you know what? We might get a better matchup on a safety on this deeper route. Stuff like that that I would never even think to ask. But he was so good at that and his preparation, not only physically, but obviously mentally really is why he is the best player to ever play the game at the quarterback position.
1: So Ted, do you, did you guys know? And God, we're like. But I'm fascinated by this stuff. So like, Ted, did you did you got how quick how quickly did it take you guys? Because you got you you saw him come in. How yeah. quickly did did you guys figure out that he was this dude? <laughs>
3: dude, it, it took a while, man. Honestly, Bert, you know you know where you know when Tom like stood like stood out and people. I get asked um, our, our old buddy John McClain down there uh, with Houston Chronicle yeah. when he asked me years ago, I, when it was the first time you noticed Tom Brady, you know, and he was going to be Tom Brady. I said, well, I think it was is the only the first time I really uh, kind of paid attention to Tom was when uh, my, my wife at the time said to me, hey, you know, this, you're, you know your backup quarterback, Tommy Brady, he's really cute. And I, <laughs> I said, who? I didn't know. You know, I didn't really know who, who he was. I mean, Tom was the third string quarterback in 2000. You know, and Drew Bledsoe was my guy. So, like, so he was, uh, you know, he was this really handsome, cute, uh, third-string quarterback um, who who had a youthful energy. Um, and, you know, we, we talk about things that stood out besides his good looks. It was his, his youthful energy, almost this kind of, you know, uh, enthusiasm that was harkens back to, like, your high school days. You didn't see that in the NFL. But also, I think where his genius is in the things that you don't, they don't jump out at you. It's the way he runs the two minute drill. You know, we'd always have, you know, the ones versus ones, twos versus twos. And you know what, more times than not, it was the twos and the offense for it was led by Tom Brady that would march down the field, you know, boom, 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 and get us in for a score. And that's kind of where Tom's genius was. It was managing games, getting in and out of the right calls, uh, knowing how to you know play with the clock running down, knowing the different situations and executing and pressure points. That was his true genius. Uh, and that's kind of, you didn't really see that at the beginning. It was something that over time it became more and more clear why he was so good.
1: Okay. So then let's swing that back to the, the larger topic here. Do you think that pulling that out of the program and we've heard, so I, I've heard forever how like Tom enables so many things there, right? Like, for lack of a better way of putting it, his willingness to to allow a coach to motherfuck him in front of everybody enables those coaches to treat everybody that way. His willingness to work certain hours puts pressure on everybody else to work that way. His willingness to take less money has kind of affected the way that the Patriots can negotiate with players. So, yeah.
3: Therein lies the rub. That's the Patriot way. He is the the Patriot way.
1: He is the patriot way.
3: He is the patriot way, Bert. <laughs> yeah. Tom Brady. What you just described is why it all worked. Just because of that, because the best player on the team, he didn't get uh, market value contracts. He wasn't treated any any different. He was held to the same standards as the last guy on the bench, and so it all fell in place. It's kind of what they, a lot of people compare. Like they talk about those San Antonio uh, Spurs teams with Popovich that. You know, Pop was just as hard on Manu Ginobili and Tony Parker, uh, you know, as and Tim Duncan as he was the last guy. So everyone fell in line. If those guys were being treated as as tough as the guy last guys on the end of the bench, then everyone fell in line. And that's kind of the same type of thing you had here with New England and Tom Brady.
1: So Matt, if you pull it out then, if you pull that out, it becomes harder to sell it, right? Like if you pull like the guy who represents everything. Because it's one thing for, like, a guy to tell you what to do, right? It's another thing for you to look over and see your teammate doing it.
2: <laughs> right. right? So, I mean, and he was, he was the epitome of, like you said, the Patriot way. But at the same time, he understood the bigger picture and what that meant. It, you know, maybe taking a little bit less, but being able to spend more money in certain um, certain areas and sacrifice maybe a little bit of money here to maybe go out and get another guy. You know, and he just – he lived and breathed it. And no matter what – look, when Tom finally was going to leave – and we, who knew if it was going to be this last year, which it was, obviously, or if it was going to be a little bit later, if he finished his career. But as soon as Tom Brady left that building, there was going to be a void, right? There's going to be mm-hmm. a void in leadership. There's going to be a void in culture. There was going to be a void and his excellence on the field, the standard, the expectation level that everybody set. And and we knew it always. I mean, you were looking at greatness every time I walked in that building and went to a meeting and watched how he'd communicate with those receivers. And he wouldn't commute, communicate with everybody differently. Welker, he'd MF and get after because he knew that that would bring the best out of him. Mm-hmm. Randy Moss, he'd have private conversations. He'd sit next to him in his locker and be like, hey, bud, this is what I'm thinking, da-da-da. And it would be more of an open conversation, you know what I mean? He was an incredible leader. He understood people. He understood how to communicate with individuals, but also at the same time, he led by example. And that is such a hard thing to, to go in and replace. And especially with any quarterback out there, whether it's a young quarterback or anything, guys like that just don't come around often. You know what I mean? And he's, he's special.
1: So this is going to be a tough question to answer. Then do you think when you look at the way the team was built for the 2020 season, did bill underestimate what he was going to have to replace
3: i'll, uh, I'll jump in matt and i'll yeah. just say i think he did Burke. i i really do it see it's the only explanation i i can really uh come up with because you know you, you just look at how bad this roster is in the in the in the quarterback position how bad it's it's performing right now and the only conclusion i can come to is that the bill underestimated either that or it's complete and utter negligence uh, as far as roster management and, and de- you know, the de- design of a roster, because, you know, he he I think clearly thought he could pick up Cam Newton late in the process and throw it out there. And, it, you know, his coaching and his schemes and, you know, it was going to be a- enough. That's the only thing I, c- I can think of is that he underestimated, um, I think, his, his influence I think he underestimated maybe how good the other teams in the division were going to be. Maybe he didn't think Buffalo was going to be as good this year or Miami. Um, You know, um, and and I think he he thought he could win games doing it like a lot of the way we did in 2001 when this whole thing got started, which was on situationally good defense, not turning the ball over on offense, being balanced, and and good special teams. And so um, it's a different game in 2020, and I think he clearly – underestimated um, the talent on his roster and uh, in his, his coaching abilities and schemes and game planning and scouting um, was not, he thought it was going to be enough. And it clearly wasn't this year. Yeah. And
2: I think that there was a lot of confidence in in terms of Bill Belichick and what he's been able to do with guys like myself, right. A no, no name guy that didn't play in college guys like Jimmy Garoppolo, that when he stepped in, he performed really well. Mm -hmm. Jacoby Bursett is another example, right? So Throughout the, I mean, history. If you look at the history of the New England Patriots, when other quarterbacks did step into this this system and play, they've had success. So, I mean, I, I think right. that you you also have to look at that. That he said, look, if as long as we have our system in place and we're able to get somebody that's a capable guy that can come in, run this offense, get 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 up to speed. But what I think he really underestimated was. All the other pieces of the puzzle that take to be successful at the offense. And, and we saw it last year. It was glaring last year at the wide receiver position. Like we all mm-hmm. talked about it. We talked about the tight end position. And that was something that they didn't address this offseason, which would have immediately helped the quarterback. Whoever was playing quarterback for this system would have immediately helped him as well. So I, I, obviously, when you lose Tom Brady, yes, you maybe underestimated what an impact he played for your organization. But at the same time, I think the other part that maybe he underestimated was the importance of 11 guys on offense, right? It's not just right. the offensive line. It's not just the run game. It's I know that might be how you want to play, but you've got to get some guys out there, some horses that can go out and win.
1: You know, super interesting, too, because I know, Matt, we talked about this before we jumped on here. But I was talking to somebody about how – and, Ted, this will resonate with you because you played one of these positions. But how, like, tight end and linebacker – outside of, like, just who the quarterback is, tight end and linebacker are the other places that have always been sort of heartbeat positions for the the team, right? So Mm -hmm. the quarterback can look in those – whether it's the tight end or the slot receivers, like the tight ends, inside receivers, like – like they can rely on those guys, and that's where the offense kind of runs through. And then on defense, like the heartbeat of the best patriot defense is whether it was you know you ted with with Braves and with Willie and with Teddy or whether it was the newer group with with Dante Hightower and Jamie Collins and Kyle Van Noy. there was always like like those positions were always sort of heartbeat positions for the team. And now it's not even like they've taken a step back. It's like they're like flat out bad at those positions, right? Yeah. So I'd assume, Ted, like it's kind of like, there's that too, where it's like you're like you've built your identity. Your greatest teams were built around these spots, and now you're really deficient in those areas. Which I guess you throw quarterback in that pile too.
3: Yeah, you know, absolutely, Bert. I don't know. You know, Bill's gotten so I think um, kind of specific in what it is he in what he wants in a player when he gets drafted. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I think. Instead of just getting, you know, an, an, an all-around really good linebacker, I think Bill seems to focus on, well, what does he do really good? He does this really good, so I can use him here. And so some games he's out there, some games he's not. One week he's highlighted, one week he's not. Well, that doesn't really help with continuity and trying to, you know, kind of build something. You know, if you got if you got guys that are all these versatile guys, that one week they're playing a lot, another week they're hardly playing. So I think there that can maybe uh, lead to uh, you know a, a team that isn't you know um, as consistent if you know what I'm saying. Ted, another- I had a
1: scout bring that up. I had a scout bring that up. Like it's a really interesting point because I had a scout bring that up who said to me you have they have too many specialty players. They have too many guys that are there for a specific reason. And Bill's kind of fallen into this trap where he'll draft guys specifically for the schedule they're playing. You know, like in 2019, right. they're playing a lot of athletic tight ends. They draft Juwan Williams. Well, that's nice for that. But but how about you just draft like a like, like a badass? You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Like right. not, like I,
3: I I think that uh, that's it, sort of part of it, right? That's it's a it's great. I'm I'm glad that it was it, you know I was it was validated by by that scout saying that because. That's what it looks like to me. It's like, man, you you can see sometimes when he drafts the guy, it's like, okay, I see what Bill's thinking with this guy. Well, okay, well, you know what? But that's not a guy you play every single week, you, you know? And it's, so it's hard to get continuity. And another thing, you know, I always think of the movie Miracle when it comes to Bill and how he's put this roster together and just uh, appease me for real quick. You guys remember that back uh, not that long ago, I guess Bill was speaking somewhere. Or Urban Meyer was introducing Bill Belichick somewhere and he introduced Bill Belichick, his friend. And he said, look, Bill only wants to coach guys that he likes. Mm. It was like this famous kind of line, you know, Bill only wants to coach guys he likes it always re- kind of reminds me. So if you only want to coach guys you like, I feel like, okay, this is the kind of team you might get. And here's the thing. If you're remembering the movie miracle, all right. Back in the day, you got Herb Brooks as the head coach of the U.S. Uh, Olympic team. You had uh, Jim Craig, who was the the goalie. Jim Craig, if you remember in the movie in the in the movie Miracle, Jim Craig gets, I think the Russians in an exhibition game, but get 10, 10 goals past them, right? And you know, Herb Brooks comes up to, to Jim Craig and he's like, you know what, Jim, I think I'm going to pull you out of net. You know, he's like, hey, that's my net. He goes, No, it's pretty much everybody's net right now. And they get into this argument, and you know what, Jim Craig says to him you know what, do you want me to take that stupid psychology test you gave me? Do you want me to take that? I'll take that. If that's what will make you happy. And her book says to him, he goes, no, I want the guy in net that, that won't take that test. And my point is, Bill, I think a lot of times, wants the guy that's going to take the test? You know what, sometimes you need the guy that's not going to take <laughs> that damn psychology test. It's got a little edge and it's got a little bite. And you know what, in those early 2000 teams, Burke, we had some characters, man. We had tough dudes. We had guys, you know, uh, that you know were, were were alpha dogs. Yeah. And I don't see that on this current well, roster with Bill.
1: That's fast. That's really interesting too. Because one of the things that came up with one of my conversations earlier today on this too was like how, like, there are these we've seen these scenes right where they pull enti- the entire defense off the field. You guys have seen that right this year yeah, okay. where they'll show like nine guys subbing in and out. And somebody brought this up to me earlier today. He said do you think in 2004 they were pulling Willie McGinnis off the field? Do you think they were pulling Mike Vrabel off the right. field? Like right. for your teams, Matt, were they pulling I mean, Wes off the field situationally? You know uh, yeah, what I mean, I mean like, that's
2: what I'm saying. When, even when I first got there, right? The, yeah. the, the defense was a 3-4 structure. You had Vince Wolfork, you had Richard Seymour, Willie McGinnis, Vrabel, Roosevelt Colvin was really the guy that was more of the rotational guy. Teddy Bruschi, Ty Warren, these guys, I mean, and there was a clear cut those guys were going to be playing. They're going to be on the field. Now, they're going to have your sub packages and stuff like that, but you knew what you're coming up against when you face the New England Patriots. Now, look, those are a lot of first-rounders because they were bad for a bunch of years, right? And you can't get that anymore. But at the same time, there is... a an identity in that defense and you understood like this is a veteran group and they got a bunch of hard-nosed dudes that are gonna come out and kick your ass week in and week out and right now like you said you, you guys are point- making some really good points about like the identity of this defense the specialty guys versus guys that are every down down and distance players that are going to be out there throughout the duration of a game versus being substituted in and out. Like you just need a good nucleus um, of guys to build that chemistry up front and to just be able to go out and play.
1: Yeah. It's, I mean, I don't know guys and we'll wrap it up here in a second. Like it's just, it feels like this is going to be more than one off season that it's going to take more than more than one off season to fix this. Like I think people are under this illusion that you're going to drop a quarterback in there. And to me, when people say that, like, that's almost disrespectful to Tom because Tom could fix things. When he was at his best, he could fix things. Like, and he could make things that weren't right look right. That's the greatest quarterback of all time. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Like, that, exactly. like, it's not like you can go, it's not like you can just go in a given offseason and go find somebody who can do that. Like, no, like, you've got real problems and the fixer isn't coming back and there aren't other, like, fixers out there. Like, like, he's a fixer. Right.
3: right? Right, and so uh-huh. that's and so I'm fascinated to see how Bill, because it, let's face it, a lot of the decisions that Bill Belichick has made this year suggest to you that he did not think that the quarterback position and getting one in here and having a good quarterback uh, play or having a quarterback play at a high level, I think was gonna it was it was something he really needed. I think he thought he could still win, um, kind of, you know, slapping it out there, and clearly um you can't because the roster isn't good enough to overcome the deficiencies that he clearly has at that position
1: all right so before i get you guys out of here i do want to get two things from you i'll get 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 this on the record right now i'm just interested to hear your perspective on these two things it's the two easy questions here i'm going to get your super bowl picks i'm going to get your mvp picks we'll get you out of here I think there are probably two guys right now that we're all focused on in the MVP race. I'm not expecting surprises from you guys on this one. So let's start with Matt. Go to Ted. Who's your MVP?
2: MVP right now, to me, it's Aaron Rodgers. I mean, the guy is completing over 70% of his passes. He's got 44 touchdowns. Like five interceptions. I mean, he he's incredible, right? And the fact of the matter is, you can say that he, when you're talking about him or Mahomes, it's you know either or, right? They they're both the elite of the elite when in terms of making every single throw. They can do things that no other quarterback in the league can do. They, the the vision, the the ability to see things, anticipate all that stuff. Great. But Aaron Rodgers, the way that he's played for this team, and I also say this: if you compare the two rosters, right between Mahomes and um, Aaron Rodgers, you look at Look, he has De- Devontae Adams, but then it's Alan Lazard. It's Marcus Valdez Scantley. It's a guy named Robert Tanyan that used to be a, a, a quarterback that has had incredible production this year. Mm-hmm. But then you look at, you know, Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, Tyree Hill, McCall <laughs> yeah. Hardman, Sammy yeah. Watkins. I mean, it's an all-star. It's, uh, all star. It's all those guys could be a Pro Bowlers every single year, right? And so the, the way that, Aaron Rodgers does and how he plays the game and how he sees the game. I just think this year in particular, I mean, he's playing great, great football and and I would have him be our MVP. All right, yeah. Jeff, where are you, you at on this?
3: It, it, I mean, Aaron Rodgers, come on, guys. He, he's, I've never seen Aaron Rodgers so at peace with himself. Like, he looks like he's having fun this year, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you heard that maybe he's got a, a lot of his personal, you know, issues kind of uh, squared away. He just seems to be more at peace with himself and who he is as just a person than he's ever been. And I think that's showing in the quality of play, man. So to me, it's Aaron Rodgers.
1: Okay. I'm going to agree with you guys. And I'm somebody who at midseason said Mahomes was the runaway pick. And I believed it at the time. And I said it was going to take a lot to get me off of that. And Aaron Rodgers has given us a lot. And I think so much of it is the year two and that Shanahan style offense. We've seen guys make this jump. Matt Ryan was in the Super Bowl in year two playing for Kyle in Atlanta, who's the MVP of the league. Jared Goff went to the Super Bowl in year two under McVay in L.A. John Elway. Um, I mean, we've seen it. I mean, Baker Mayfield looks better in year two. John Elway, yeah. yeah. Baker Mayfield looks better in year two in Cleveland. So I think there's definitely something to that. And Aaron really looks like – I just – like as good as we've seen him, which is saying a lot. Okay, Super Bowl picks. Matt, you first.
2: Well, you know, I think that this buy that the the, the number one seed overall has this year is more important than any other year. And I, th- I say that, but Green Bay in particular, just with the weather conditions, because it really you don't have the home field advantage that you used to have with the home crowd and the, and the def- helping the defense out with noise and this, that, and the other. But the, what they do have is weather. And then Kansas City, obviously, they're the team to beat to me in the AFC. But when those two meet at the Super Bowl, I'm gonna have to go with my MVP pick, right? I'm gonna have to go with uh, the Green Bay Packers, baby. Let's go! <laughs>
3: hey, man, please, please, God, please! If there are oh, football God. gods out that there, would great, our...
1: wouldn't wouldn't that would be great, wouldn't it? Mahomes and Rogers. After everything we put up with this year, Mahomes versus Rogers. Please be awesome. make
3: it an Aaron Rodgers, uh, Patrick Mahomes Super Bowl, man. And I think Patrick Mahomes. I think the I think the Kansas City Chiefs. They just you know what? They kind of sleepwalk through the first half of these games. They're so good these games they're playing in are closer than they really are because you know what they're toying with. It was like a cat with like a wounded mouse. (laughs) They're just kind of playing with you in the first half. And then they just, they put you away in the second half. I think they're just too good, man. I think they ultimately uh, win the whole thing again.
1: I'm with you guys. I think the two number one seeds win. And you know what? I'm going to take the chiefs. I'm with Ted on this one. Like the one thing, and I mentioned this to you like right before we jumped on the air, Matt, I, I think for teams like green Bay and Buffalo, I actually think home field could be enhanced this year because I can't think of anything more miserable than like falling behind 10 to nothing and being in a dark, cold, oh. empty stadium <laughs> oh. in Wisconsin or Western New York. Yeah. That sounds Awful, uh,
2: <laughs> particularly in the NFC. No he, energy, yeah, yeah. I mean, because you've yeah. got the you've got Tampa Bay, right? That's got to go to that conditions. You got Seattle, which, yeah, it gets a little cold in Seattle, but not like New that. Orleans. You got New Orleans, you got Arizona. I mean, you've got these potentially Arizona. So you've got these teams that are not used to playing cold weather climates. And I'm telling you, it's a shock to your system when you go from a warm weather climate to a freezing cold tundra. You're sitting there going, Oh yeah. my gosh, what the heck is going on? Right <laughs> It's I just worst. think of
1: like as a normal 40 year old like how like everything hurts more now like I can't imagine being drew breeze you know breeze a year older than me oh like getting like hit in the cold in Green Bay and looking up and you just see empty stands yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and you can
2: hear all the defensive linemen yelling at you I
1: oh, got you good you son of a <laughs> yeah so all right well this was great guys i really appreciate you doing it uh tell the folks where they can find you i know matt's got like this weird like strike against social media so oh, no, i don't I, know if anybody can find matt on social i'm but gonna figure Ted, it out yeah, yeah Ted, where I, can they find you
3: yeah dude god bless you matt dude i i wish i was more like you like i, I wish i, I, wish I was care, as mature as but matt. i gotta care but so you can if uh you can find me at at teddy j radio On Twitter, that's the best place to find me. At Teddy J Radio on Twitter.
2: Oh, look, I do have a Twitter handle. Mine's at Castle Matthew sixteen. Boom.
1: There you go. How about that? There it
3: is. There it is. Got two followers. And Matt's
1: also (laughs) Matt. Matt. I think you can also find Matt on NFL Network and ESPN. Now is my understanding.
2: No, no, no. I did a little NFL Network today. It was a blast. So, but that's about. uh, I didn't do any ESPN. They they, they've got a tight tight network over there. They really they don't deviate from that plan much.
1: (laughs) All right. Matt that they're Matt Castle they're Ted Johnson Patriots, my buddies on NBC Sports Boston guys really appreciate you doing this
2: absolutely bud you're the best all right, boys my pleasure
1: all right well big thanks to Ted and Matt that was a lot of fun we're going to jump into our DraftKings segment for week 17 that's right it is week 17 and to do it like we always do we're going to turn to our buddy Michael Fabiano of si.com the original author of the start of sit column been doing that for 20 years and i think we i feel like you owe the public now fabs an update after we talked about um your whole fantasy setup last week you're in 14 different leagues and eight of them you made it to the finals how did
0: championship weekend go for you it was it was a whirlwind so christmas day camara goes crazy yeah and has 56 points could have had more could have had seven touchdowns in that game. So I'm in eight leagues. I have Kamara in two, but I'm playing against him in three. So right <laughs> off the bat, I'm probably screwed. And then the following day, I had one league where not only was I facing a team with Kamara, but uh, three teams with Kamara, but two of those teams had Mike Evans. Yeah. So I'm like, you got to be kidding me here. This is ridiculous. After Sunday, it looks like I'm going four and four, right? And I go into Monday night, and I'm thinking, all right, fifty percent, I'll take it. Um, but there was a couple of leagues that I wanted to win that it looked like I was going to lose. Then came Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs in a <laughs> league uh, called the Kings Classic, which is a very prominent league and in it, the fantasy that's football. An, industry. That's an
1: important one to you too, if I remember right. Yes. Like right, like right. we were talking about that last week. Yeah.
0: I was down, it was my first year doing it because typically they do the drafts at the Pro Football Hall of Fame and I can never go in the past because of work. But this year, because of COVID, they did it just online. And I was down 72 points to Mike Clay from ESPN, who's a good buddy of mine, a really great fantasy mind. And I had Alan Diggs and Cole Beasley. And in the second half, suddenly I'm only down 13 points. I'm like, whoa, I'm going to catch up. And then Allen threw that third touchdown pass to DeFond Diggs that put me over the top I ended up winning. Shockingly, miracle comeback. All right, so I'm five and three now. Another league. I'm down 30. My opponent, uh, Doc Roto, had Zach Moss. And I had Stefan Diggs. When Moss scores the touchdown early, I'm like, "Ah, that's that's it. Diggs came back all by his lonesome and put up well over 40, I won that one too. So I ended up going six and two. Wow. I won the Allison Chains League. I beat Duff McKagan and he had Stefan Diggs. I won two friends and family money type leagues. I won the Kings Classic. I won the Fantasy Football Nerds Charity uh, League, which is the one that I played against Doc in. The only two leagues that I lost One, I played Kamara and Evans, and there was no way I was catching up. And then the other league that I lost, I played against Kamara too. So, Kamara got me twice, but ultimately – you beat him once. uh, Right, right. I beat him once. Ultimately, on on the back of Diggs. Because I had – in the league where I beat Kamara, I had Evans and Diggs on my roster. So, I know it's confusing because I have so many. (laughs) So, overall, six and two, it's probably the most championships I've ever won in a single season because – I played in 14 uh, 14 leagues this year. Normally I don't play in that many. I'll play in maybe like eight to 10. This year I played in more. So Mm -hmm. it uh, it was a good 2020 in that respect for me.
1: There you go. Well, there's a silver lining for you. And it's and what, been a weird 2020 for everybody. I, like I, I, like the one thing that I sort of like – and I couldn't get this out of my head. I actually put the call out for some stories. And I have some stories in the bank like from some people that I just – when I reached I sort of crowdsourced this on Twitter mm-hmm. on Saturday. But I just sort of like thought about the idea. Like what would it have been like to have Brady and you're going against Kamara and Kamara – scores that six touchdown at the end, right? They play him almost all the way to the end of the game. Mm-hmm. Brady looks like he's on track to like match like what Kamara did statistically and he uh, gets yanked at halftime. I know <laughs> like, right? Like, or even like somebody who was in that situation, maybe on Monday where like the bills look like they could have named their score against the Patriots, right? right. Like that, it ended up 38 to nine. That could, that thing could have been 59 to nine, right? <laughs> so like, what if you're, like, in, like, say you're down, like, two or three points, and Allen's your quarterback, and they pull Josh and put Matt Barkley in, man, that would suck. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, I know. Because that's, well, like, not your – that's not, like, a skill thing. That's right. just, like, it's the end of the year. They're looking to get him some rest. So it's just
0: I – mean, so many of these things are so – I just, like, a dice roll. You know what I mean? That's what – I was I was worried about that in the, in the Bills game because – they were boat racing the Patriots, and I'm thinking, damn it, they're going to put Barkley in at some point, and I'm not going to be able to catch up. But then they had that aggressive drive where they just kept throwing the football, ultimately ended up in a, in a third digs touchdown, and I'm like, you know what? Sean McDermott's making a point here. He's putting the Patriots to bed. Yeah, He's saying, hey, you guys were really good, great, for two decades. It's our turn now. And so that I will – I'll tell you this. I'm a diehard Cowboys fan. I would gladly wear a to find Diggs or Josh Allen jersey after what they did uh, this, this past week. And actually, another league that I won was the Busted Open yeah. Fantasy Football League, which was with a bunch of wrestlers. And just a real quick shout-out to Jonathan Huber, who uh, unfortunately was in the league but passed away um, yeah. a few days ago. I don't know if you saw it. Uh, yeah. Former WWE superstar. He was in AEW. He was in the Busted Open Fantasy Football League. Uh, we lost him too soon at 41. Um, so, uh, dedicating that title to, uh, to the memory of Jonathan. But, yeah, Diggs and Josh Allen are on the, uh, on the uh, Christmas card lists of many a fantasy manager after uh, the miracle they pulled off on Monday night.
1: No question, no question. Just kind of like a weird, a very weird weekend. Lots of scoring, too. Like, lots of big offensive yeah. performances. And think so. about it, too.
0: What, you know what you mentioned with Brady? The same yeah. thing happened with Fournette. Because Fournette yeah. had a big first half, and then he didn't do anything in the second half because he barely played. But I think that Bruce Arians has a fantasy football team with Mike Evans on it because he played Mike Evans to the very end. Yep. To the very – he didn't need to be out there. They could have put out, you know, Tyler Johnson and Scotty Miller and and Cameron Brayton, whoever else. Ba mixing up that on the, makes the whole game, Albert.
1: <laughs> ba ba maybe mixing it up on the download of the fantasy you, man, scene. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. All right, we'll, we'll we'll jump into it now. We're gonna flip it around a little bit. Obviously, the calendar dictates this, but um because you know now we're moving closer to the playoffs most teams people's fantasy leagues are done we're going to get to you if you still have a fantasy league going on here in a second but we're going to start this week with our DraftKings dfs segment obviously this is going to go through the playoffs so we'll keep having fabs on to talk about this stuff and so fabs for week 17 your dfs bargains and fades and of course, this is a complicated weekend on
0: that front, right? Very complicated because you're going to see a lot of names that typically wouldn't be anywhere near fantasy lineups actually having legitimacy this week. So uh, we'll start off at quarterback with the bargains and Kirk Cousins against the Lions. We know that Dalvin Cook's not going to play. I would assume Kirk Cousins is going to play a full game against Detroit, and they got boat raced by the Bucks last week. He's only at $6,300. Philip Rivers in a must-win game against the Jags at $6,000, and then Derek Carr against Denver's uh, up-and-down defense at $5,700. At running back, three names that typically would not be anywhere near a starting lineup. But Darryl Williams against the Chargers, I don't think Le'Veon Bell's going to play much this week, if at all. He didn't play much last week. I mean, he burned a lot of people last week, $4,800. Malcolm Brown looks like he's going to be the top guy there for the Rams with Daryl Henderson on injured reserve and Cam Akers dealing with the high ankle. Uh, Brown's at $4,300. And then Ty Johnson, who now looks like he's going to be the main back for the Jets this week. LaMichael P. Ryan got put on the COVID list, and Frank Gore is not playing, and that's a $4,300 cost. So that's pretty good at wide receiver. Assuming Matthew Stafford plays, which I'm not sure if he will or not, I like Marvin Jones at $5,100. T. Higgins is a targets machine. I like him against the Ravens, and they're banged up secondary at $5,000. And another name that typically is not on the fantasy radar, Richie James against the Seahawks. At $3,100, the Niners have done Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk, So there's going to be a lot of targets out there. I guess George Kittle's probably going to see about 12. But Richie James could be the top wide receiver there. Kendrick Bourne also in the mix. At tight end, Irv Smith Jr. at $3,900. Evan Ingram against my Cowboys at $3,700. He owns the Cowboys. And then Hayden Hurst, assuming there's no Julio, right, uh, against the Buccaneers at $3,700 as well.
1: Okay, so now we will touch on... Your stardom, sit-em for this week, obviously a little bit of a different scenario. Most fantasy leagues wrap up in week 16 for obvious reasons, but mm-hmm. there are some stragglers out there, right, Fabs? Yeah. So yeah. we are going to give you a stardom, sit for week 17. Fabs, what you got?
0: So at quarterback to start, Ryan Tannehill is a great play, a great play this week. The matchup's tremendous against the Texans. They just gave up almost 24 to Brandon Allen for crying out loud, and the Titans need that game. Uh, I mentioned Kirk Cousins, Philip Rivers. Justin Herbert's a good play. Uh, he's been a great play all season long. Tom Brady, great matchup. And Bruce Arians is saying they're going to play a win. I mean, that doesn't mean that they're not going to play to win with Blaine Gabbard. I'm not sure because the Buccaneers might rest some of these starters. So keep tabs on the status uh, of, of the Buccaneers starters here in the next couple of days and see if Bruce Arians comes out and says anything more about that. At running back, Jonathan Taylor's a great play. David Montgomery's been a league winner. David Johnson was tremendous in fantasy championship week. DeAndre Swift's got a great matchup against the Vikings, and I mentioned Malcolm Brown uh, in a matchup against the Cardinals. Well, he'll be the feature back for a very banged-up Rams offense. At wide receiver, Brandon Cooks and Corey Davis in the same game, both stardoms. Uh, Hollywood Brown against the Bengals, I like him this week. Marvin Jones, I mentioned as well. I still think you could start Deontay Johnson, even with Mason Rudolph under center, but he's more of a flex this week. I mean, somebody's got to catch the football for the Steelers. It's I'm shocked that Ben Roethlisberger's not playing. Uh, At tight end, Mike He's a great play against Buffalo. I mentioned Evan Ingram. Robert Tunyon wasn't great last week. i keep the faith against the Bears. Uh, Also like Jared Cook this week against the Panthers as a sort of low-end tight end one. Quarterbacks to sit. Kyler Murray, I'm not sure if he's playing. If he does play, I sit him in fantasy. The Rams' defense has been nasty good against quarterbacks, and Kyler's at less than 100%. And honestly, Kyler's had one good game in the last month. Uh, Baker Mayfield is a fade for me against Pittsburgh. Uh, We forgive him because last week he had no wide receivers and didn't do much against the Jets. But uh, I still say he is a sit even with his wide receivers back. Uh, Two is a sit for me against Buffalo. Cam's got a good matchup against the Jets. Or is it? The Jets are playing well now suddenly. So (laughs) I'd fade him and Trubisky against the Packers as a fade. At running back, Mike Davis has a tough matchup against the Saints who need that game in Carolina to secure the number one seed in the NFC. Kenyon Drake's a bad play against the Rams. He's a flex at best. Giovanni Bernard against the Ravens. Uh, Le'Veon Bell and Devin Singletary, both sit for me at wide receiver. Tyler Lockett's been a sit him for like a month for me straight, and he's going to continue to be that against the Niners. I'd sit all my Rams wide receivers. Maybe Robert Woods is a three or a flex because there's nobody else, but even if Cooper Cup plays this week, he's on the COVID list right now, not playing him with John Wolford under center. Uh, DJ Chark, Juju Smith-Schuster, Chase Claypool, all risks for me this week. And at tight end, uh, Austin Hooper, Jimmy Graham, don't chase the points, Zach Ertz, and Tyler Higby. And one thing that we want to get out there too, Albert, the Chiefs, and this is why you don't play in Week 17, the Chiefs are going to rest everybody. I don't know if they're going to start the game and, and maybe play a couple of series or just not play at all. You can't play Mahomes this week. You can't play Levy on this week, although he was bad last week. You can't play Tyreek. You can't play Kelsey. You can't play the Chiefs defense. They're – this is why you don't play in Week Seventeen. It's been better. There were times in the past before the NFL altered the schedule late in the season where Week Sixteen was even kind of risky. Right. Remember, like Peyton know, like Manning the and the Colts would the day, always yeah. <laughs> Peyton Manning and the Colts would always lock up the number one seed and like yeah. not play in Week Sixteen. Now it's more of the Week Seventeen issue. But you can't play any Chiefs this week unless you know they're the backup. So like you know, Nicole Hardman or I, I don't even think Sammy Watkins is going to play. He's banged up. Uh, or maybe, you know, again, Daryl Williams could be on the waiver or on the wire, uh, in a league and maybe even Darwin Thompson, who knows? I mean, it could be anybody for the Chiefs.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's crazy to think about that. Like, yeah. Like when they altered the schedule and they started to stack the division games, I like that it's worked to some degree. I mean, I do remember that, like there was, there were years where the Colts were, they'd be like 13 and 0 and everything's locked up. And it's like, I think one year like they may have sat their guys for the last two weeks and then backfired that
0: I remember a time when there were some fantasy folks out there thinking maybe we gotta go to a week fifteen championship because and I, I remember it happened with the Colts. I remember one year it happened with the Eagles. I mean it would happen every single season for at least a couple of teams that had already clinched everything in week sixteen. I mean, they take the foot off uh, off the gas pedal.
1: No question. No que-
0: what does week seventeen look like for you? I am doing the same, uh, just a little bit less. Stardom <laughs> and okay. Cinemas on SI.com. It's an abbreviated version. Everything else is kind of the same. I'm doing player rankings this week. Uh, still continuing to do my radio show on SiriusXM five days a week, um, uh, 8 a.m. Uh, excuse me, 8 p.m. Eastern. And still be doing the Sunday show. This will be my last Sunday show on SiriusXM. And then after that, there's a lot of playoff content. It's not nearly as, as mm-hmm. crazy as it is for us in the regular season. But there's still plenty of DFS and playoff games out there too. So uh, still plenty of work to do. And then you know we've got what senior bowl and the combine and all that kind of oh, stuff. yeah. After yeah. the Super Bowl is over, you know that's it doesn't funny. End.
1: It's funny because like people say that to me. They're like, oh yeah, like you're gonna get a chance to kick your feet back. It's like no, like the combine's like two weeks after the Super Bowl. Right. And there's enough to do in between one and the other where it's just like my time off is in June and July.
0: Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know I mean? Right. Exactly. Because yeah. after you got after the combine. And then you're looking at free agency coming up yeah, and then, you've got, the and release, and then stuff, you've got the schedule release yeah. and then you've got draft. Uh, I mean, you know, yeah, it's-
1: they, they've, yeah, they've done a good job of taking all of our free time away. No question. Um, <laughs> <That's it. true. laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Be sure to check out fabs on Sirius XM and everywhere else, of course, at SI.com. Uh, fabs always appreciate it. Happy new year to you and your family.
0: You too, my friend. Take care. Happy new year.
1: All right. Thanks to fabs. Thanks again to, to Matt and Ted fantastic show this week. We'll wrap it up with the six pack. You guys know how this works every Tuesday, usually Wednesday this week. I put the call out for questions on Twitter. Um, I pick a bunch for the mailbag. I pick a bunch for the video mailbag. You guys can check those things out on the website and I pick six here for the podcast. That means if I pick yours, I hit like, I give you that little heart emoji on the Twitter machine, and you get an answer here on the podcast. Question number one comes from Spurs. That's at Spurs 0678. What do people around the league think of Jack Easterby, the Texans head coach, GM job? I think teams are are coaches, scouts are leery of Jack Easterby and the setup down in Houston. And I think that's seen as a place that's a little bit of a mess right now. And I think the biggest question that needs to be answered is who is really making that decision? Who has the owner's ear? Is it the search firm, Corn Ferry, led by Jed Hughes, or is it Jack Easterby? And is Jack Easterby in self-preservation mode at this point? That's why it's messy, because there, I think, are different people pulling at the owner right now, and the owner's going to have to make a clear-headed decision on what to do. In fact, one of those people that, that has the owner's ear is Deshaun Watson, which could be a little bit of a tell in the way that this could go. Deshaun Watson has talked to Patrick Mahomes about this. And my understanding is Patrick Mahomes has put in a strong recommendation for his own offensive coordinator, Eric B In addition to that, a strong connection for Jed Hughes is John Dorsey. He's known him for a long time. He's close with him. John Dorsey, of course, the ex Browns and chiefs general manager was together with the in Kansas city. So, I've heard that pairing bandied about a little bit where you hear, could John Dorsey go in there as the GM with Eric Bieniemy as the head coach? If you did that, would Jack Easterby still be around? Would that mean that the search firm had won the power struggle? If Jack Easterby is making this decision, where does he go? Does he go back to that Patriot tree? Maybe try to get somebody even like a Gerard Mayo in there. There's a lot of unanswered questions on the way all this is going to work. So it's going to be an interesting one to follow over the next couple of weeks. And speaking of guys that are sort of hovering over searches, our next question comes from Jason Kralik. That's at Krolik. I guess that would be how you pronounce your name, right? If you're doing the phonetic version as your handle. So Jason Krolik, who are the leading candidates for the Lions GM and Lions head coach job. Thanks. Uh, Jason, the reason why I thought there was a nice transition there from Easterby is because there's somebody hovering over that search too, and that's Chris Spielman, the great former linebacker, um, the uh, like former Lions legend um, coming back into the organization. I think for scouts and for coaches who are on the level where they'd be considered for those jobs, there is a level of concern. Okay, what's his job going to be going forward? What's Chris Spielman's job going to be going forward? Let me answer that for you here my understanding is Chris Spielman's job is going to be to sort of set the culture in the organization. Part of the issue they've had there is the organization is split football to business. The football people are out in the suburbs, the business people are downtown at the stadium. And that's led to sort of a disconnect and sort of, I guess, a like different pieces of the organization sort of working on different time. And that doesn't sound like a big deal. But it can be. It can lead to bigger problems within your organization. And I think it's a credit to Sheila Ford-Hamp that she recognized that and said, okay, we need to figure out how we're going to get everything squared away where everyone is working together, her and team president Rod Wood. So they bring in Chris Spielman to sort of oversee that because he's somebody who should know what it looks like, what it should be set up like. Not only because he played in the league and because he has all of those years working under different coaches and everything as experience, but also because over the last few years, as was the case with John Lynch four years ago, he'd be coming out of TV. So he's had the experience of being in production meetings, having been in team facilities, having seen teams that win and having seen teams that lose and understanding some of the markings of those who are successful and those who aren't. So those are. I think that's the whole backdrop to the situation. There is how comfortable are you with Chris Spielman, and what sort of influence is Chris Spielman going to have over the process? I think the one concern people have is that Chris Spielman aspires to be more than that, and could carry a heavier stick in the organization. And if he has the year of ownership, that could be problematic. I don't like. I, I'm. I think you got to give Chris a chance with this. I think he's a good guy. I think it'll be interesting to see the way that this goes, um, and I do think that. The easy choice might be the correct choice here, and that's area native Robert Sala, the 49ers defensive coordinator. I think if you need somebody who's going to come in and kind of be a powerful voice in the organization, be a guy who's a tone setter in the organization for you, um, I think you'd do a lot worse than hiring Robert Sala. I think the bonus to getting Robert Sala, too, is he'd bring a strong GM with him. I think, you know, if Salah got the job, the person to watch would be Colts' assistant GM, Ed Dodds, who's an absolute ninja when it comes to player evaluation, and I think would be really good for that one. Question number three from Anthony. That's at A2, low 11. Can you see Mike McDaniel or Mike LaFleur, that's the 49ers quarterback's coach, not the Packers head coach, getting head coaching interviews? I can see them getting head coaching interviews. I don't think it happens for either guy at this point. I do think Mike McDaniels become McDaniel becomes a guy to watch. If Salah gets a job, I think that's the guy Robert Salah would pro, would try to bring with him wherever he goes. And that's an interesting one because Mike McDaniel is the one guy. If you look at Kyle Shanahan's history going all the way back to Houston, You look at Kyle Shanahan's history. He's the one guy he's brought everywhere with him. He's integral into putting together the run game that's been the fuel for that offense for so many years, going all the way back to Mike Shanahan in Denver. And so I think Mike McDaniel's a really interesting one. You know, Mike LaFleur has got the passing game coordinator title there. I think if Mike McDaniel were to leave, it would lead to Mike LaFleur maybe having a little bit more influence in San Francisco. And I think it would set both guys up to be candidates down the line for head coaching jobs. So I like where both those guys are. And I think Robert Sala getting a job somewhere else could help both of them in different ways. Question number four for Moose Block. That's at Moose underscore block. Is Sam Darnold in a Colts or a Jets uniform next year? I think there's a chance neither. I mean, like, we've broken down the Jets situation with the second pick, um, how this is about more than just one player versus the other. Justin Fields versus Sam Darnold. Zach Wilson versus, Zach, versus Sam Darnold. This is about like the financial situation, the fact that you'd have to make a twenty-five million dollar commitment to Sam Darnold if you do pass on a quarterback with the second quarter, with the second pick of the draft. Theoretically, like it seems like it would be a no-brainer that you exercise that fully guaranteed option if you are going to pass on taking a quarterback with the second overall pick. So it's a complicated decision the Jets have to make, and I just I think it's going to be more than than the Colts involved if he is available. The Broncos loved him coming out. I think the Niners would kick the tires on him. I do think that there's, you know, I think there's some love for Sam Darnold in the Niners building. Um, So those two teams, I think the, the Bears would be a natural place to look. Pittsburgh, you know, they could be looking for life after Ben. You know, would it be worth it to them to flip a late first round pick to go get Sam Darnold and put him in places as the successor to Ben? I think it could make some sense. So I do think that there's going to be a good market for Sam Darnold if he becomes available. So I don't think it's just Jets or Colts complicated decision for the Jets. So question number five from Matt Ramis, that's at Matt Ramis, our buddy, which of the number five, six or seven seated teams do you think have the best chance of making it to the conference title game? Give me in the AFC, the Baltimore Ravens. Um, I just think they've got a chance the way they've played the last few weeks to sort of, Get some redemption for what's happened the last couple of years in the playoffs. And I like having a battle tested coaching staff the way that they do. Um, John Harbaugh, Wink Martindale, Greg Roman. I think there are a lot of guys to trust in that coaching staff. And it wouldn't surprise me to see them knock off one of the division winners. Like if they were playing, you know, Pittsburgh or they were playing, I mean, Buffalo would be a tougher nut to crack maybe, but I but wouldn't even rule that out. You know, but Pittsburgh, if they're playing Pittsburgh in the first round, um, they're playing, you know, Tennessee or Indy in the first round. I absolutely can see them winning that. And then you get to the, to, to the divisional round, and, you know, who knows what can happen then. So, absolutely, I think the Ravens would be the team in the AFC. In the NFC, give me the Buccaneers. I just, like, it's so many years of watching Tom Brady play. It's so many years of watching Tom Brady play, seeing him in those situations, seeing, you know, how, like, it's just how much confidence belief he brings to teams uh, like I and we talked about it with Matt we talked about it with Ted like just having that belief uh, like I could see the buccaneers advancing a couple rounds in the playoffs Absolutely. And our final question, question six for the week. This is from Shedrick Carter at Shedrick Carter too. With a week left in the season, how likely is Rahim Morris to get the Falcons job? The team needs a total reset and bring in somebody with fresh ideas. Shedrick, my my guess would be that's going to be up to the general manager. I think the Falcons are likely to be the first team to pull a trigger on a general manager. I think their plan is to hire a general manager first. Some of the names you've heard, Rick Smith's name's been out there. Jerry Reese would be another experienced name. I would expect to be in the mix. Terry Fontenot, I, I think, you know, right now, if I had to gamble on someone getting that job, it would be Terry Fontenot, the Saints assistant general manager. Champ Kelly is another name to watch. Uh, you know, I, the, it's – it's, there, there's a lot of – you know, Brad Holmes would be another name to watch from the Rams. I, I think that they're pretty far along in their process. And I think once they get it going next week with some of the guys who are with playoff teams, I think we could see it wrap up relatively quickly. And then I think you move on to the coaching decision. And again, I think that that GM, that new GM is going to have some sort of say in whoever the head coach is. Appreciate you guys coming out. This was a fantastic show. I had so much fun doing the stuff with Matt and Ted. Thanks to Fabs too. We'll keep it going with him over the next uh, few weeks, even though the fantasy season's done for most people. And we want to include you in the show, which is why we do the six pack, um, which is why we do what we do. Asking for feedback every single week. We want your feedback. We value your feedback. We can use your feedback. You can leave us a rating and review on iTunes. That really helps out. But you can also get to me on my social channels at Albert Breer on Twitter, at Albert underscore Breer on Instagram, at Albert R. Breer on Facebook. And remember to listen to all the MMQB shows. We've got the Monday morning show and the gambling show. That's in the MMQB podcast feed. We've got Jenny and Connor's show, the Weekside podcast feed, and of course my feed, the Albert Breer show. You know where to find all of us, too. Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you guys get your shows. We're there, and we'll be back next week with all of your coaching news, with the playoffs, all that stuff. We're going to have it for you right here, same time, next week. We'll see you guys then.